we're going to take a couple weeks to look at the subject of a first day Sabbath, a, a biblical defense of the idea of the first day Sabbath. And for tonight, we're going to read in connection with that Psalm 132, a song of ascents. Lord, remember David and all his afflictions, how he swore to the Lord and vowed to the mighty one of Jacob. Surely I will not go into the chamber of my house or go up to the comfort of my bed. I will not give sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids until I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling place for the mighty one of Jacob. Behold, we heard of it in Ephrathah. We found it in the fields of the woods. Let us go into his tabernacle. Let us worship at his footstool. Arise, O Lord, to your resting place, you and the ark of your strength. Let your priests be clothed with righteousness, and let your saints shout for joy. For your servant David's sake, do not turn away the face of your anointed. The Lord has sworn in truth to David, he will not turn from it. I will set upon your throne the fruit of your body. If your sons will keep my covenant and my testimony, which I shall teach them, their sons also shall sit upon your throne forevermore. For the Lord has chosen Zion, he has desired it for his dwelling place. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell, for I have desired it. I will abundantly bless her provision. I will satisfy her poor with bread. I will also clothe her priests with salvation, and her saints shall shout aloud for joy. There I will make the horn of David grow. I will prepare a lamp for my anointed. His enemies I will clothe with shame but upon himself his crown shall flourish. Let's ask God's blessing. Our Father and our God, we give thanks for the opportunity to study again some matters related to your word. We ask that you will enlighten us and guide us so that we may understand correctly and so that we may also believe and obey the truth and give glory to you. Bless us here and hear our prayers for Jesus' sake. Amen. As I said, we're going to be taking a couple of weeks to look at a biblical defense of a first-day Sabbath. Of course, uh, generally speaking, this defense of the first-day Sabbath rests on the idea that our Lord Jesus Christ rose from the dead on the first day of the week, and that this resurrection of our Lord from the dead points us to a new day for worship, as we see practiced also by the New Testament church. Not the seventh day of the week any longer, but the first day of the week. And we can extend that whole idea of the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ to the idea of the new creation. For in his resurrection, our Lord Jesus Christ became the beginning of that new creation. He received, in, as the first fruits from the dead, the glorious resurrection body, which is no longer an earthly body, but a heavenly body, a body fitted for the heavenly creation. And the uh, resurrection, therefore, is the beginning of that new creation. And when our Lord Jesus Christ 
ascended into heaven, he continued the work of remaking the heavens and the earth. He is doing that even now, especially in the work of regeneration, by which work we, as Christians, have been made new creatures in Christ, creatures whose proper place is not here any longer in the earthly creation, but creatures whose proper place is in the heavenly creation, whose very beings are suited only for that new heavens and the new earth which our Lord Jesus Christ will make at the last day. And this new creation then and the resurrection of Christ mean that we need a renewed Sabbath. No longer a seventh day Sabbath, but a first day Sabbath. A first day that celebrates the first day of the new creation, that celebrates the resurrection of Christ, and that celebrates even our own regeneration or resurrection, as it's sometimes called in the scriptures, in Christ. That's the basic argument, I think, for the idea of a first day Sabbath, but I think that we can clarify and strengthen that argument about the first day Sabbath by referring to the covenants of God in the Old Testament and the various references that we find to those covenants, uh, uh, to rest in those covenants of God. And so we're going to be looking at uh, four of God's covenants with his people in the Old Testament. The covenant with Noah, the covenant with Israel at Mount Sinai, as found in Exodus, the covenant again with Israel in Deuteronomy, as found in that book, and then the covenant with David. And we're going to conclude our study with by looking at the new covenant in our Lord Jesus Christ and the relationship of rest to this new covenant. So we begin with the the covenant with Noah. Now, uh, before we actually talk about Noah himself, we have to lay the the groundwork for that um, look at Noah in the original work of creation. When God created the heavens and the earth, he created them, of course, in six days, and he rested the seventh day. That's in Genesis chapter 2. And when he rested on the seventh day, God sanctified that seventh day for man. That is, he set that day apart as a day in which man should also rest in imitation of him. He worked six days and rested the seventh day. He therefore laid it on men to work six days and rest the seventh day in imitation of him. But this pattern of work and rest was disrupted and in fact made ineffective by the fall of Adam and Eve into sin. Their work had been done prior to the fall in the service of God, and they had worked six days in God's service and rested the seventh day in imitation of God, and that rest which they enjoyed on the seventh day was not only rest from their physical labors, but was also then the enjoyment of the fruits of their labors and fellowship with God. 
When God rested from his works, I think we may say in Genesis 31, what that meant for him was that he saw all that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And men too, as long as they worked in the service of God, could look back on their work in that service and say, it was good. God blessed me in that work. I did what God required of me to do. Now I can rest from that work and enjoy for a time the fellowship of God. But of course, after the fall, Adam and Eve could not, as they were by the fall, work any longer in the service of God. And because they could not work in the service of God, they could not either enter a true rest any longer. They could, of course, cease working on the seventh day, but the true significance of the rest had been lost to them. And God himself spoke of this when he cursed the ground and cursed Adam's work in Genesis chapter 3. Verses 17 to 19, To Adam he said, Because you have heeded the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree of which I commanded you, saying you shall not eat of it, cursed is the ground for your sake. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. So the ground was cursed. Adam was to work in toil all the days of his life. Both thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you shall return. So the fall disrupted this pattern of work and rest, corrupted it because of the sin of man. And it's in the context of those two things then that we have to understand what God did with Noah in Genesis chapter 8. In Genesis chapter 8, he made a covenant with Noah. You can read the, about the details of that covenant in the earlier parts of that chapter, also in chapter 9. But at the end of chapter 8, God said, as part of the promises of his covenant, I will never again curse the ground for man's sake. That's the phrase we want to pick up on here. I will never again curse the ground for man's sake. He's obviously referring to that curse on the ground from Genesis chapter 3, verse 17, and he's saying, I'm going to lift that curse now. I will not any longer curse the ground for man's sake. And when we consider that promise of God, we're forced to the conclusion that promise has not yet been completely fulfilled. The curse still remains on the ground. The curse still causes the ground to bring forth thorns and thistles for us. Our labor is still toil. And in Romans chapter 8, the Apostle Paul says that the creation is still groaning and travailing together in pain because of the bondage of corruption and waiting to be delivered from that bondage of corruption in the adoption of the sons of God. That's Romans 8. And so this promise of God points also to the final day, the day of the renewal of all things in our Lord Jesus Christ. That's when the curse will be fully lifted. Nevertheless, God did, it seems, lift that curse in part at the time of the flood. 
he removed some of the heavy burden of that curse and made a little bit of rest possible for men again. Well, you might well ask, of course, how does the idea of rest enter into this covenant? It's not mentioned there in Genesis 8. But if we go back to Genesis 5, we can see it there. At the end of Genesis 5, we read about the birth of Noah. It's in verses 28 and following. And in connection with the birth of Noah, Lamech, his father, prophesied. Under the influence of the Spirit of grace. This was not, of course, the Lamech of Genesis 4, who murdered a man for injuring him and boasted about it to his two wives. This is the Lamech who was descended from Seth and was a believer. When Noah was born, then Lamech prophesied, saying, This one will comfort us concerning our work and the toil of our hands because of the ground which the Lord has cursed. So Lamech also made reference to that curse of God, and he said, This one, that is Noah, will comfort us regarding that curse of God on the ground. And the rest, uh, the idea of rest enters in here with the name Noah. Noah means rest. He called his name rest, we might translate, saying this one will comfort us concerning our work and the toil of our hands. So Lamech prophesied, about rest in connection with that covenant of God made with Noah after the flood. Now that word Noah is, of course, not derived from the same word for rest that we find in Genesis chapter 2. It's a different word for rest. But that word is the word, nevertheless, that we find in the fourth commandment in Exodus 20. When God commanded his people to remember the Sabbath day, that's the word that you find in Genesis 2. Then he also said, verse 11, In six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested the seventh day, and that word rest there is from the same Hebrew root as Noah's name. So this word is also associated with Sabbath rest. And Noah then restored a degree of rest to the people of God, a degree of that rest that had been lost through Adam's fall. But as we said a little bit ago, This covenant with Noah also points us to the new creation and the uh, complete doing away with that curse on the ground in the new creation. And the final and perfect rest then, that the same perfection of rest that Adam and Eve enjoyed in the garden before the fall. Our Lord Jesus Christ himself makes the connection between Noah and his coming again in Matthew 24. Matthew 24, verses 37 to 39. 
But as the days of Noah were, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in the days before the flood they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark, and did not know until the flood came and took them all away, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. And Peter makes the connection between the flood and the last day, also in Second Peter chapter 3. That covenant with Noah, then, is a covenant which is not realized fully until the creation of the new heavens and the new earth. And part of the blessing of the new heavens and the new earth is the restoration of the rest that Adam and Eve lost. In 2 Peter 3, uh, Peter describes the world that then existed that was standing out of the water and in the world in the water, and he says of that world it perished, being flooded with water. But the heavens and the earth, which are now preserved by the same word, are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. So we see this idea of rest carried forward from creation to the days of Noah. That much, then, about the covenant of God with Noah. We turn, in the second place, to God's covenant with his people at Mount Sinai. And this uh, word of God, this giving of the law at Mount Sinai, is called a covenant in Exodus chapter 24, verse 7. Then he, that is Moses, took the book of the covenant and read in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has said we will do and be obedient. So God made covenant with them. And in connection with that covenant, God spoke a lot about the Sabbath. And he changed in this um, Revelation about the Sabbath at the time of the giving of the law at Mount Sinai, both the practice and the meaning of the Sabbath. The Sabbath did not remain unchanged after Mount Sinai. God instituted changes. And there are six things especially that I want to look at here. The first is that God put his law for the first time into writing. He wrote the moral law on the two tables of stone that he gave to Moses. And he made one of the commandments of that moral law the commandment to observe the Sabbath day. He could have put that commandment to observe the Sabbath day in the ceremonial law, there were many other laws given at Mount Sinai. All the laws about the sacrifices, all the laws about the priesthood, all the laws about cleansings and so on, all of that stuff was also given at Mount Sinai. And he could have put the Sabbath commandment into the ceremonial law, but he put the observance of the seventh day into the Ten Commandments. And this is the heart of that covenant that he made with Israel at Mount Sinai. Those Ten Commandments, 
as he himself shows when he speaks of his covenant to them in the introduction to that law, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. That was the fulfillment of his covenant. And he says, therefore, you shall observe my Sabbath day. It was part of the moral law. This is one of the main arguments for the continuation of the Sabbath into the New Testament period. And he gave to his people Israel a reason for observing the Sabbath also in the commandment there. And that reason goes back to Genesis chapter 2. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested the seventh day. That's clearly alluding to, even kind of quoting Genesis chapter 2, where it speaks of the Sabbath day, but here, as we've already noted, the word rest is from the same root as the name Noah, rather than from the root Sabbath. So they were to observe the Sabbath because of God's creative work in the same way that Adam and Eve had observed it. Working six days, resting the seventh day, because that is what God had done. That's the first point that we need to make in connection with this uh, uh, practice and meaning of the Sabbath at Mount Sinai. God wrote it into the moral law on the tables of stone. The second thing that we should note, and this is very striking in connection with what we've just said, is that God also at Mount Sinai gave his people other Sabbath days. Not just the seventh day was to be a Sabbath for them, but they were to have, for example, Sabbaths, to begin and to end the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and Sabbaths also to begin and to end the Feast of Tabernacles, which was in the seventh, the Sabbath month. And that Sabbath month was also set apart by God with two other ceremonies of the law. First of all, the day of the blowing of trumpets, the first day of that month, which was a Sabbath day for Israel. And secondly, the Day of Atonement on the 14th of that month, which was also a Sabbath for Israel. So Israel had seven, the seventh day as the Sabbath, and that was in the moral law. And then these other Sabbaths in the ceremonial law. And there was the Sabbath year besides. Every seventh year, they were not to plant crops on their land. They were to allow the land to enjoy its Sabbaths. All of these Sabbaths are in the ceremonial law, and all of them have passed away with the coming of Christ, and it's of these that the Apostle speaks in Colossians chapter 2 when he says, let no man judge you in regard to the Sabbaths and the new moons and other things as well. So this was a change in practice, a very significant change in practice, that all these additional Sabbaths were added to Israel's life. These ceremonial Sabbaths. 
third change with regard to the Sabbath was that God instituted special sacrifices for the Sabbath day. There were daily sacrifices that the priests were to offer in the tabernacle every day of the week, but on the Sabbath day there were extra sacrifices to be offered. This was another way in which God set the Sabbath day apart from the rest of the days of the week. That's Numbers 28, verses 9 and 10. Now there are three more points that we need to make in this connection, and I think these three points are all very important. First of all, as our fourth point, the Sabbath day became, by the law of God, a day of holy convocation for Israel. That's in Leviticus chapter 23, verse 3. Leviticus 23, verse 3. Six days shall work be done, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest, a holy convocation. You shall do no work on it. It is the Sabbath of the Lord in all your dwellings. It had not been ever before this a holy convocation. Even in Exodus 16, when we read about the Sabbath in connection with the giving of manna, there's no mention there of a holy convocation. That was an observance of the Sabbath day in connection with the manna. God did not give the manna on the seventh day, and the people were not to uh, seek the manna on the seventh day or prepare the manna for eating on the seventh day, on the Sabbath day. But here at Mount Sinai, God gave to his people the commandment to observe this as a day of holy convocation, that is, to come together for worship. This is the beginning of the synagogue. And it's very important because it points us to the practice, doesn't it, of the church in the New Testament. This has become the church the practice of the church in the New Testament, not without reason. We have our holy convocations, especially on the one day of the week, the New Testament Sabbath day. That's the day when God commands us to worship him, to gather with his people. So this is, this is very important. It points us to the truth that the Sabbath day is no longer as it was for Adam or Noah or Abraham or even Israel prior to Mount Sinai, just a household matter where they rested from their physical work. But God made this change in practice. It's now a day of holy convocation for his people. It's to be a day of corporate worship when the people of God come together to worship their God. That's the fourth point. Then the fifth point is that when God gave to Israel his law at Mount Sinai, he also commanded them to build him a house where he could come to dwell among them, the tabernacle. And he lived in that house 
He made his presence known in that house by the uh, Shekinah, the cloud of glory, the pillar of fire by night and the pillar of cloud by day. And it was a place for his people also to live with him. He brought them into it as well. They couldn't physically enter the house themselves, but their presence was signified by the furnishings of the holy place, the altar of incense where their prayers were offered to God, the table of showbread with its twelve loaves signifying the twelve tribes, and the seven-branched candlestick signifying the presence of the Spirit of God among them. They were dwelling in that house with God. And that tabernacle is was the house of God's rest. He came to that house as his resting place. This is in Numbers chapter 10 first. Numbers 10 verses 35 and 36. When Israel was wandering in the wilderness, they began their wanderings when the ark, when the pillar of cloud or pillar of fire was lifted from the tabernacle. That was the signal for them to get ready to move. And then that pillar went, of cloud or fire went before them as long as they were traveling. And we read then in Numbers 10, So it was, whenever the ark set out, that Moses said, Rise up, O Lord, let your enemies be scattered, and let those who hate you flee before you. There's a very close relationship of Psalm 68 with those words of Moses. And when it rested, verse 36, when it rested that as the ark came back to the most holy place where Israel was to stop her traveling, he said, return, O Lord, to the many thousands of Israel. And again, that's a word that's derived from the same root as the name Noah. So the tabernacle was God's place of rest. Psalms 132 also celebrates the uh, tabernacle as the place of God's rest. This psalm is about the return of the ark to the tabernacle, to the, in this case, at first anyway, the tent which David had set up for it in Jerusalem and later to the temple. And notice what the people say in verses 7 and 8. Let us go into his tabernacle. Let us worship at his footstool. Arise, O Lord, to your resting place, you and the ark of your strength. Again, the word is derived from the same root as the name Noah. Arise, O Lord, to your resting place. And in verses 13 and 14, For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling place. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell, for I have desired it. God chose that place for his resting place. And he brought his people into that resting place. And this is also very significant for us in the New Testament because that tabernacle is a type of the church. The church is the new resting place of God. 
It's the new house of rest for God. God comes to his church to make his rest there in that church and to bring his people into his rest with him, to enjoy rest with him. And if you go back to Psalm 132, even more significance, this psalm is a messianic psalm. Immediately before the Lord says, this is my resting place, we read the recitation of his promise to David. The Lord has sworn in truth to David, he will not turn from it. I will set upon your throne the fruit of your body, If your sons will keep my covenant and my testimony which I shall teach them, their sons also shall sit upon your throne forevermore. And then again in the last verses of the psalm, there I will make the horn of David grow. I will prepare a lamp for my anointed. His enemies I will clothe with shame, but upon himself his crown shall flourish. The resting place was God's tabernacle. And the throne of God, of which he speaks, was in the most holy place of the tabernacle. The Ark of the Covenant was his throne. When he came to sit on his throne in the tabernacle, he came to his resting place among his people. And when Christ sat down at the right hand of God, he came to his resting place. And when Christ sends his spirit to rule in the hearts of his people, He comes to his resting place, to his church. The church is his resting place, the resting place of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. So that's the fifth thing. This tabernacle becomes very significant in the whole idea of God's rest and of the rest of God's people. And the sixth and final thing is that God made the Sabbath day a sign of his covenant with Israel at Mount Sinai. You find that in Exodus 31, verse 13. Actually, that passage goes down to verse 17, but we'll read just verse 13. Surely my Sabbaths you shall keep, for it is a sign between me and you throughout your generations that you may know that I am the Lord who sanctifies you. Now that's also very important. Remember that the main point of the covenant of God with Sinai was the law. And if God had just simply given that law to his people, it would have been simply a source of despair to them. Because there was no way they could keep that law. And so the Lord says, Look, I'm giving you something else. I'm giving you my tabernacle where I will dwell among you. I will prepare the way for you to enter that tabernacle through the sacrifices and ceremonies of the law, through the cleansings and so on that are performed in the courtyard of the tabernacle. I will give you the Sabbath day as a sign that I am the Lord who sanctifies you, who enables you to keep the law, who enables you, therefore, to enter into my rest, into my holy dwelling place. So 
So you see a lot of enriching of that sign of the Sabbath day. You see changes to the practice of the Sabbath day in connection with Mount Sinai. God has the right to do this. He had given the Sabbath day earlier uh, to uh, Adam and Eve in the garden. He had uh, relieved the curse of Adam's, uh, on Adam's work and on the ground at the time of Noah. But now he, he takes that Sabbath day and he infuses into that Sabbath day new meanings and gives to his people new practices in connection with that Sabbath day. The sign doesn't have to, because he is the Lord of the signs, the sign doesn't have to remain the same through all the years that it exists. Any more, for example, than the sign of circumcision remains the same in the New Testament. Our circumcision, according to Colossians 2, verses 11 and 12, takes place in our baptism. Baptism has replaced the bloody sign because no blood may be shed any longer now that the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ has been shed once for all. So all of this that happened at Mount Sinai was very significant for God's people and very significant both for the practice and the meaning of the Sabbath day. God is investing that Sabbath day with meaning related not to the creation, but now to the new creation in Christ. It points forward to Christ himself, as well as backward to the original creation. Now there's a lot of law here with regard to the Sabbaths. We've been referring to all these different laws, and it may be... uh, comes to some people's minds that, well, that's a burden, a heavy burden for the people to bear, to observe all these different Sabbaths, not just the weekly Sabbath, but the other Sabbaths as well, and, and to do all these different things, offer these special sacrifices and so on in connection with it. That's not how believing Israel looked at it. Oh, how I love your law, Lord. It is my meditation all the day. To them it was a better Sabbath that they had received. Not a more burdensome Sabbath, but a better Sabbath that God had given to them through his covenant with them at Mount Sinai. And then finally, let's look at God's covenant with Israel in the plains of Moab before they entered the land of Canaan. That covenant is found in the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy has to be considered separately from Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers because it was not given at the same time. This whole book was spoken at the time that Israel was about to enter the land of Canaan, almost 40 years after Mount Sinai. And of this book of Deuteronomy, God says in Chapter 29, verse 1, These are the words of the covenant which the Lord commanded Moses to make with the children of Israel in the land of Moab, besides the covenant which he made with them in Horeb. And again, God made changes with regard to the Sabbath day. First of all, we have a change in the fourth commandment. 
God gave them the moral law, the Ten Commandments, a second time here in this covenant. And again, he included in that moral law the requirement to observe the Sabbath day. And he said to his people, in it you shall do no work. But the change is that he says to them, he gives them a new reason for observing the Sabbath day. The reason is no longer that he created in six days and rested the seventh day, as it was in Exodus 20. That reason still stands, of course, but there's an additional reason. And remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out from there by a mighty hand and by an outstretched arm. Therefore the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. It was a remembrance of God's redeeming work. And notice how that goes back to the introduction to the law too. The introduction to the law says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And here in the fourth commandment, he really repeats it. You were a slave in the land of Egypt and the Lord your God brought you out from there by a mighty hand. His redeeming work then becomes another reason for the observance of the Sabbath. He gives them not only rest from work, but rest from sin, rest from the bondage of sin which is what Egypt was a sign of. That's the first change we find in Deuteronomy. The second change that we find is that the land of promise now, as they stand on the border of that land about to enter in to conquer it and to take it for themselves, that land becomes the land of rest. Suddenly, God begins to talk about the land of promise as the land of rest. It's not just in his house that they will have rest, but in his land, the land which he gives them. Remember what the Psalm 95 says, when God pronounces his uh, curse on that wilderness generation who would not obey him, who were rebellious and tempted him for 40 years in the wilderness, he says, Therefore I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter into my rest. And Hebrews takes this, then, and applies it to us. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 1 and following. Hebrews 4, Verses 1 and following, we have a warning that the apostle gives to the Jews who were faltering in their faith. Therefore, since a promise remains of entering his rest, let us fear lest any of you seem to have come short of it. For indeed, the gospel was preached to us as well as to them, but the word which they heard did not profit them not being mixed with faith in those who heard it. For we who have believed do enter that rest, as he said, so I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. And the passage goes on, but that's enough. That Hebrews 4 takes that and applies it to the New Testament. That land of rest 
is the heavenly country for which we hope. Hebrews 11 says of Abraham even that he looked for a better country. Not the land of Canaan in which he was a sojourner, but the heavenly land. The land to which our Lord Jesus Christ is bringing us. That is the land of rest. Rest from the toil and the curse that God brought on us because of our sins. Rest from our sins as well. Perfect rest from our sins forever. And then one more thing in the book of Deuteronomy. God told his people when they came into the land that he would establish for them a central place for his tabernacle, a central place of worship. He would put his house in a permanent place. It would still be the tabernacle, that impermanent kind of dwelling place. At least at first it would be that. But it would be in a fixed place now, where something it had never had before. And it was there to that place that they were then to bring their tithes and their offerings. That was going to be the place of their worship. They were not to worship anywhere else. They were to bring their tithes and offerings only to that one place. This is in Deuteronomy 12, verses 8 and following. You shall not at all do as you are, we are doing here today, every man doing whatever is right in his own eyes. For as yet you have not come to the rest, notice the word rest there, and the inheritance which the Lord your God is giving you. But when you cross over the Jordan and dwell in the land which the Lord your God is giving you to inherit, and he gives you rest from all your enemies, notice there that there's a third idea attached to this rest now. It's rest from enemies. You have rest from work, rest from sin, now rest from enemies. When he gives you rest from all your enemies round about so that you dwell in safety, then there will be the place where the Lord your God chooses to make his name abide. There you shall bring all that I command you, your burnt offerings, your sacrifices, your tithes, the heave offerings of your hand, and all your choice offerings which you vow to the Lord. And you shall rejoice before the Lord your God, you and your sons and your daughters, your male and female servants, and the Levite who is within your gates. That central place of worship. And again, of course, that place of worship for us in the New Testament is the church. That's the place where God dwells. That's the place of his rest. In going to that house of God, we enter his rest with him. So in all these ways, we see that God is working with that idea of the Sabbath. He's changing it. He's adding to the practice of it. He's enriching the meaning of it. And he's saying to us in the New Testament, all of this that I am doing in the Old Testament is going to be fulfilled in the new. I am going to give my people this rest, which I have spoken of in many different ways in many different places and showed you the meaning of, the rich and glorious meaning of, in my word and in my law. I'm going to give you rest.
we celebrate that rest when we observe the Sabbath day. May God bless you with his word.